All right, Genesis chapter 10, all the way through to chapter 11, verse 9. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, Riphath, and Togomar, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sapta, and Ramah. And Sabtekha, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city of Reboth, and Kela. And reason between Nineveh and Kelon, the same is a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim, and Anamim, and Lehabim, and Naphtuhim, and Pathshrishim, and Kalashim, out of whom came Philistim, and Kaphatorim. And Canaan began Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Avarite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite, and afterward were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adam, and Zeboam, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born. And the children of Shem, Elam, and Ashur, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram. And the children of Aram, Uz, and Hal, and Gether, and Mash. And Arphaxad begat Selah, and Selah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almodad, and Shelef, and Hazaramav, and Jerah, and Hadoram, and Uzel, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimelel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah and Jobab, all these were the sons of Jokthan. And their dwelling was from Misha, as thou goest unto Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, and their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Chapter 11. 
And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we would pray thee now that you would open unto us the simple biblical truths that thou hast placed therein, that we might see thy sovereign hand over all the affairs of men, and the gospel as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Last week, uh, I know what I covered um, might have been difficult to understand. I know it raised um, some questions. And uh, what I wanted to share with you is that God has placed in the book of Genesis and other places, he's placed world history. And God has orchestrated all events. Indeed, the heavens declare his glory and the earth, his the firmament, his handiwork, so that everything glorifies the Lord and that which he does. Um, what we call history, the Lord placed before us here, his story. What we have in here is the story, is his story, is God's story, that he would teach us the gospel and that he would teach us what things we need know about his story or about him. We know that in the book of Galatians, it makes reference to Hagar and Sarah, referring to them as allegories as two covenants. So you have two women's lives that were very meaningful to them and very real to them and all the things that they experienced in this world. But the things that God has recorded in the scripture for us were for the benefit of teaching us the gospel. He says, again, their lives were two allegories that we would understand this thing. And so all of creation sets forth the glory of God, and including the geography that God has placed in the, uh, in particular in the region of the Middle East, that we would understand certain things about the gospel. And that will come up and throughout what I'm going to share with you this morning. It is not a coincidence that Sodom and Gomorrah was placed in the lowest place on planet Earth. It's not a coincidence that God has orchestrated the cities. You see here how he has moved populations around the globe. We read in Psalm 37 about the Lord directing the steps of people. Not only does he direct direct our steps, but he directs the steps of the Gentiles. And we read about the blessing from Noah and the curse from Noah that he gave to his three sons, and they go out into the world directly according to what we read in Genesis chapter uh, 9. So the Lord's going to teach us gospel truths, and some of these things might be hard to see or hard to understand, but nevertheless, God has included them in there for our benefit so that we would appreciate and understand all of the things that he does. So I'm going to talk today about some broad things and some 
big picture patterns about what the Lord has done here. So we would again appreciate his sovereignty in the affairs of all nations. Um, so what we have set before us here in Genesis chapter 10 is what is referred to as the table of nations. It chronicles the dispersion of man from what the world calls the cradle of civilization or Mesopotamia, the location of which the Bible rightly calls Babylon. Those, one are, those two are one and the same, the cradle of civilization and Babylon. In verses 18 and 19 of Genesis chapter 9, we read, And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them the whole earth was overspread. From one man and one woman was the whole earth populated, from Adam and Eve. So scientists have traced the mitochondrial DNA of all living humans back to a single female. And similarly, genetic markers in the males in the world today can be traced back to a single male. Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve are connected to everyone now living by an unbroken father to son or mother to daughter line. What that means is the human race didn't pop up, some of it in Africa, some of it in Mesopotamia, some of it over in China. It all came from one man and one woman. So this scientific, scientifically proven reality affirms what the Bible teaches in multiple places as to the genealogy of man. But it is also succinctly stated in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. In Acts 17, 26, we read that God, quote, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitations. So from Genesis chapter 3, we know that God populated the earth from two people, Adam and Eve, and then repopulated it from six people. That would be Noah's three sons and their respective wives, as it says in Genesis chapter 10. You will note that the narrative regarding the overspreading of the earth by the three sons of Noah always starts with an individual and then concludes with families, tongues, and nations. Verse 19 of Genesis chapter 9 talks about the three sons. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth spread. In verse 1 of chapter 10, again, talked about the three sons. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When you get down to verse 2, then it moves to an individual. It speaks just of Japheth and those that came out of him, concluding in verse 5, divided in their lands after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Tongues are noted first in this verse so that we would appreciate that it was the confusion of languages, that is to say, people speaking in different tongues that divided the peoples, not different physical characteristics. In verse 6, we start with an individual. We start with Ham, and then get down to verse 20, where it says, After their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Same with verse 21, we speak of the individual Shem. After the, and then verse 31 says, After their families, 
after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. Chapter 10 of Genesis closes out with verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations, in their nations, and by these were all the nations divided in the earth after the flood. After the flood. By these three men and their wives came all the world's population. The division which occurred after the flood and not because of the flood. So we should appreciate ever that the places where these various population groups went and where they settled was divinely guided by the Lord. Again, in Acts 17.26, it says that God hath determined that man would dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitations. Before the foundation of the world, God determined where each people group would live and when they would live there. Now, significant to the gospel, God determined where the sons of Jacob would dwell and where he would manifest his glory. Of Israel, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, quote, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. God chose his people by virtue of the fact that he loved them, not because there was anything meritorious in them, but simply because he loved them. Obviously, that's a parallel, and he's really speaking about the Israel of God. That is the reason God has chosen the elect. It's because of his love. Now, the entirety of the world's population revolves around the number of God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, we read, Deuteronomy 32, 8, When the Most High divided to their nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Everything in the world revolves around the children of Israel. And by that, I want you to appreciate he's speaking about um, the Israel of God, spiritual Israel. Regarding spiritual Israel, we read, The Lord is not willing that any of his people should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we know that when the last of the elect does so, when the last of the elect comes to repentance, God will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, ushering in the new heaven and the new earth. You read about that in Second Peter chapter 3. So I want us to appreciate from all this that the overspreading of the globe and the time it takes to do so uh, to the Lord's satisfaction is all directed by God. People didn't just roam about the earth where they saw fit, but God was behind their migration and was directing their steps to places when and where he wanted them to go. And they will continue to overspread the earth until such time as the last of God's elect comes into the fold, comes into the ark of Christ, at which time he will destroy this earth just as he destroyed it in the flood. So when we study world history, we study... Uh, what happened, when, and where, and we ascribe secular reasons to those events. But we are not told about the divine hand of God 
behind it unless you read your Bible and can see the work of God in it. He clearly tells us that he is the one directing the steps of men and all nations. The division of peoples, we read in the scripture here, is clearly stated in verse 5 and verse 20 and verse 31 and verse 32 of Genesis chapter 10. It was the result of people speaking different languages. Given this reality, we should appreciate that race is a construct of man, that all people are of the human race, and what differences there are between people, which most notably would be the skin pigmentation and hair and eye color, although there are some other physical characteristics that are typically uh, minor in nature. All of these differences are the result of intermarriage within certain population groups and what environmental conditions they were subject to over a long period of time. Race is a construct of men. White-skinned people have produced black-skinned children, and black-skinned children have produced white-skinned people. And I have pictures to show you after church. I can show you that very same thing, where a couple gave birth to twins. One is black, one is white. One couple did it twice. It is the depraved nature of man that lifts up their own physical characteristics as those most desirable and superior to their fellow man and that would entertain and embrace this false idea that there are different races among men, all of which are inferior to what they construe to be their own. In other words, it fits right into people's idea that they're better than everybody else and they will simply ascribe their skin color or what characteristics they may have as justification for that belief that they are superior to their fellow man. They will construe that that individual is a different race and that gives them reason for oppression. So thinking more of themselves than they ought to think, which Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says we should never do, they harbor a sense of entitlement or victimization which rationalizes the confiscation of other people's liberties and goods, endeavoring to subjugate them to their will and indeed slave them, enslave them. As we've seen in this country over the past many years, this results in a lot of interhuman conflict and violence, all of which is rooted in man's pride. Illustrative of man's depravity, depravity, which reared its ugly head when Cain killed Abel and when Noah's youngest son, Ham, looked upon the nakedness of his father while he was in the tent. In our narrative, we see peoples move from the mountains of Ararat, which is the high ground upon which there was an altar to God, to the lower ground, to the plain in the land of Shinar, where they would build a monument to themselves. We see them moving from the east to the west, in other words, from light to dark, all of which is consistent with man moving further from God because men love darkness rather than light. And in that place, in that place in the land of Shinar, they do what is so very common to man. They consult with one another and not God, for they say one to another, Go to, let us make brick. They do not consult God. And if you read through your Bible, everywhere Israel or any of their kings engages in an activity without consulting God, 
it ends in a disaster. So you should expect that from your own life. If you do not seek first the will of God, you're going to run into trouble because he has told you that if you would ask him for wisdom, he will give it to you liberally. He invites us to come to him continuously and seek his will in our life. If you don't do it, you're not going to prove God to be a liar. It's not going to go well for you. This is particularly true in the life of a Christian. We are to consult with God before we do things. So here we have in our narrative, they fail to consult God and do that which is right in their own eyes. But they have a good reason to do it, do they not? Quote, lest we be scattered upon, lest we be scattered abroad upon the whole face of the earth. So we have here in Genesis chapter 11 what we might think of as the first ecumenical movement. I mean, it sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Do not a lot of churches embrace this idea that we should all come together in one big church and perhaps compromise what truths we hold dear? The answer is no, we should not do that. And this is not going to work well for them either. So here we have our first ecumenical movement with the idea that they would bring everyone together under a common rule, a one-world government, if you will. Let's be united in our cause and, quote, make a name for ourselves by building a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Well, this may sound good to people. It is, in fact, in rebellion to what God had told man to do. God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and replenish, which means to fill the earth. It's a general recapitulation of what God had told Adam in Genesis 1.28. But I think here the rebellion that was manifest is really greater than that because I think there was a desire to place themselves, metaphorically speaking, above the judgment of God. Recall that God had covered all the earth with 12 cubits of water. And although the geography had changed, I think it was their idea that they might lift themselves up and be like God's, which was Satan's um, temptation to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. I think that all men still have that in their hearts, that they would be like God's. Well, one of the things I would have you to keep in mind here is that Noah and his son Shem were both still alive at this time. Both were living until after God divided the peoples at Babylon. As a matter of fact, Shem died when Abraham was 150 years old and Isaac was 50 years old. Shem was alive when God rained brimstone and fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. All the while, these people in Babylon were uniting themselves in opposition to God's instructions to overspread the earth they had living amongst themselves eyewitnesses to and survivors of God's horrific judgment in the global flood. When Abraham's father Terah was living in Ur of the Chaldees, making, selling, and worshiping idols, Noah and Shem were ready witnesses to God's judgment, both having witnessed what happened when men turned from the true and the living God to idols both having witnessed what happens when men change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That's Romans 1.23. And so in a short 350 years, the world is again steeped in idolatry. And in a hundred more years, while Shem is still alive, following the progression, or rather degeneration laid out in Romans 1.24, 
we read that God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, for which rejection of his truths and degradation of their persons, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in a storm, not of water, but of fire. Evidently, they took some boldness in what they perceived the rainbow to mean. So from the heights of the mountains of Ararat and the altar of God to the lowest point on earth and ultimately perdition would go all men absent the grace of God. And so from the certainty of this pit did God save men through the preaching of the gospel and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Now the Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Clearly, his ministry did not end with the flood, just his congregation. So, back to Babylon, who was the one behind this rebellion? In verse 9 of chapter 10, it says that we would appreciate that Nimrod was the man behind this enterprise, and he was the power and authority behind it. His name means, we will rebel. One of the things I want you to appreciate is you don't see him again. He's behind the scenes. In chapter 11, when it actually talks about the construction of the city and the tower, you don't find him there. But he's the power behind it. In Genesis 10, verses 8 through 11, I'm going to read that. and says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala. Now, as I said to you in my introductory remarks, God has included certain things in Scripture that we would appreciate the gospel and we would appreciate the spiritual issues that are um, very much uh, in this world today. Verse 9 says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, meaning before the Lord's face. What he did was a brazen thing. What was he hunting that God thought it need be included in Scriptures? Well, he was hunting men. He was hunting men that they would worship him. He would lift himself up in that tower and be like the Most High. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, begins as a proverb against the king of Babylon. In verse 12, it is evident that the subject of this proverb is Lucifer, which is Satan, helping us to appreciate that Nimrod, the king of Babylon here in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, is, as Nebuchadnezzar is elsewhere, is a type of Satan who, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And Scripture says, whom we are to resist in the faith. So Nimrod here is a type of Satan, and he hunts, as it were, the souls of men. You can find that in Revelation chapter 18, verse 13. We are going to find, as we go through the Bible, that there are other types of Satan. And as you go further in the Scripture, they're more and more obscure and difficult to see because Satan is very subtle. We're going to see him in terms of King Abimelech. And you're going to see it start as one, move to two, and then to three in terms of the life of Abimelech as he sets up a false trinity. 
Another man who is a type of Satan is King Saul, the first king of national Israel, a king that they desired. And so it is, just as uh, Satan is the king of this world, that national Israel desired a king. Now, Saul was a manhunter. He also knew some scripture. He did some prophesying, as you recall. Who did Saul hunt? He hunted David. That is a large part of the narrative with respect to um, David's ascension to the throne. Saul hunted David. Nevertheless, God preserved David from him, just as he does all of his elect, and he puts David on the throne, just like he puts all of the elect on his throne, Christ's throne. So you see these spiritual parallels. In verse 10 of Genesis chapter 10, it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which is Babylon. So whereas this kingdom has a beginning, I would ask the question, when does his kingdom end? The answer is, spiritually speaking, it has not yet ended. We are living in Babylon. Babylon is a type of the world. The world, having rejected God, lives in confusion, lives in Babylon. In Revelation chapter 18, God calls his people out of Babylon, from which we understand that Babylon is the world in which we now live, in which the Lord is calling us out of. It is a world which worships the beast and the dragon, which is Satan, the power behind the beast, from which dominion the Lord has removed his elect. The Lord plainly says, quote, Come out of her, my people, and be ye not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. That's Revelation 18, 4 and 5. Her sins have reached unto heaven, a spiritual parallel to what we're reading about here in Genesis 11, 4 to 5. They are building a tower up to heaven. Now, using anthropomorphic language, the Lord, before whom all things are naked and open, goes down to see the city and tower whose top may reach unto heaven, which men builded. Confirming for our benefit that it is true that they are in fact doing that, God then confounds the language of man giving new tongues to the various families so that unable to communicate, the people, quote, left off building the city. They left off building the city. Well, I would ask, what about that tower? It doesn't say they left off building the tower, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. So, the world was then divided by language, not by some geographical or political upheaval, not by famine, not by war nor pestilence, but by language. God confused the language which caused men to, quote, overspread the earth, to go forth, be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth, enforced or compelled obedience to his commandment because they couldn't communicate with each other anymore. So from man's perspective, it seems very natural, very logical that they would split up and be with those people with whom they could communicate. But we understand from his story that God directed it and was the um, precipitation of it. On the flip side of this, it also means that Noah and Shem would only be able to witness to people that spoke their language. God doesn't reverse this process until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we see in the book of Acts chapter 2. 
Then was the gospel to go forth into all the nations and not before. It should be noted from what we read here in the scriptures, and this is consistent with the um, archaeological evidence that's set before the secular world. It should be noted that all the world's people literally migrated from Babylon. The place the world calls the cradle of civilization, in their unknown irony, God truthfully calls the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That's Revelation 17.5. Now, I wanted to make note here that there are, uh, we should appreciate a certain spiritual parallel, and that is this. When God calls the elect out of Babylon, he calls us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness or confusion into the kingdom of light. When he does that, he gives us a new tongue as noted in Mark chapter 16, verse 17. There we read, the Lord is speaking, and he says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, meaning through the preaching of the Gospels, uh, devils are cast out. And then he says, They shall speak with new tongues. Called out of Babylon, you're going to speak with a new tongue. Christians speak in a spiritual language on spiritual matters that only other Christians can understand. There is a language or tongue that is unique to the family of God that requires the Holy Ghost to interpret. Unless the Holy Ghost attends to the preaching of his word and the sharing of the gospel, no one can understand it. In another spiritual parallel respecting the history of the church, we note that as the earth was overspread, men start out in unity, and then things fall apart fairly quickly. One of the interesting things to note in these genealogies is that initially, the most grievous hostility to the Israelites, or the sons of Shem, come first from the other sons of Shem. The Assyrians the Chaldeans or Babylonians, the Persians and the Syrians are all sons of Shem. Then comes the persecution from the Gentiles, which in the case of biblical history would be the Greeks and the Romans. Parallel to this, we see in the book of Acts that the church starts unified and then suffers divisions. Initially, it suffers its greatest persecution from the Jewish brethren from whence it was initially formed before it suffers the persecution of the Gentiles. Once the church is spread out and institutionalized, it first suffers persecution from those that call themselves Christians. We see this historically with the institutionalized persecution from the Roman Catholic Church in their office of inquisition. That comes first, and then it moves to a more generalized persecution from the secular governments, which is the period we're living in now. So in a nutshell, collapse first begins from within and then from without. That applies also in the political arena. We can certainly see that in this country with respect to the rampant confusion, corruption, and foolishness on the part of the government of this country. What next would remain would be that which shall come from without. As Christians, the Lord has said to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and that it is he who builds his church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Attacks from within his church and without his church are simply his means of purification. 
We read in 1 Peter 4.17, quote, that judgment must begin at the house of the Lord. The Lord permits us to suffer these things, again, to purify his church, and he's given us a protocol to follow that we would put out the leaven, lest it leaveneth the whole lump. So if we follow God's protocol, it's, uh, the church would indeed be purified. As we read in Genesis, we are to arm ourselves against the wiles of the devil. He puts these generic truths in front of us, these principal truths in front of us, so that we would appreciate and understand the wiles of the devil and then um, know how to conduct ourselves. We see the manifestation of his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, and its confusion, where even in this country, the highest court to be esteemed in this country has a sitting member that cannot tell you what a woman is. We see a confusion that is institutionalized in our system of public education and in HR departments all across this country. We see a censorship of truth and a promotion of all things that blaspheme God. In a word, we live in Babylon. We have a Babylonian government, which the Bible calls the beast. We have a Babylonian monetary system. We have a Babylonian educational system which indoctrinates our children in the Babylonian way of life. And soon we shall have a Babylonian health care system via the World Health Organization. And so in Genesis, God sets before us the beginning of Satan's earthly kingdom. Now I'm going to close with this benediction from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. But then the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace wherein God, um, of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon elect together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Sometimes people interpret that benediction and specifically greetings from Babylon to be code language referring to Rome in particular. But I would say to you, based on the things that I've shared with you, the beginning of his kingdom being Babel and it's being destroyed in Revelation 18, that it is... Today, as well as it was then, we are living in Babylon. So, other saints, we greet from Babylon. Amen.